Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hello and welcome back to the Will I Vike It podcast. Today my guest is Max Miller from Tasting History on YouTube. So welcome to the show, Max. Thanks for having me. It's very good to have you. Um, I've got a little confession I didn't tell you before we started recording is when we first made contact, I planned a few questions. And then yesterday evening, I've only just got your book and I realized that Uh, most of the answers are in your book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's but, all right it's for those who don't yeah, have the book that's what i'm thinking i think we run with it anyway um and yeah give a general overview because i'm sure there's there might be some people that aren't aware of what you do i don't know i'm I, i'm sure that there are billions <laughs> of people out there who don't know what i do <laughs> so yeah i kind of thought we'd sort of start off with where where you began really so you started off your youtube channel i think about three years ago yeah Coming up on three and a half. Yeah, it was right right when the pandemic started. And I just kind of wonder what it was exactly that sort of gave you that inspiration. What made you actually start doing videos? Because a lot of people talk about, I want to start doing a YouTube channel or this, that or the other, but it's actually doing it is another thing. So what actually gave you that push? Yeah, you know, I was, I had been in that, boy, I want to do a YouTube channel or something like it, you know, I just needed a creative outlet. I was working for for Disney at the time, Walt Disney Studios, which was creative, but it wasn't my creative outlet. It was Disney's creative outlet. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and I've been looking for something creative to do for a while. And I've been, you know, writing different things and, and working on little projects, but I, I decided I wanted to start a YouTube channel, not just uh, because it was, you know, something creative to do, but also, I was kind of looking for a little extra money, you know, any way to make a a few extra bucks here and there would have been great. Um, And so I had started baking some, some years earlier and would bring the food into work and Mm. would talk to my coworkers about the history of whatever, you know, I had made, make the Battenberg, make a Battenberg cake and I would bring it in. And while they ate it, I'd give them a little two or three minute lecture on the history of the Battenberg cake. And in Christmas of, uh, it was at the Christmas party in 2019. And one of my coworkers said, you should put this on YouTube. And I was like, well, gosh, I'd been thinking of doing something on YouTube and I just had no idea what. And so she gave me the idea, you know, put it up, put it up. Um, and I used to watch the Great British Bake Off, still yeah. do. 
but when it, when it first came out, they used to have these history sections in the in the show, which sadly they've gotten rid of. Mm. And they would talk about the history of whatever they were baking. And I loved that so much. It's kind of what got me into baking was the history aspect. And so as soon as she said, put this up on YouTube, I knew what I was doing because I wanted to recreate those. I wanted to recreate those segments. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's that's essentially how how it started. And um, I gave myself a deadline uh, because I am the kind of person who will work on something for 20 years before putting it out in public because I want it to be yeah. perfect. You know, yeah. everything you want, everything to be perfect and uh, it never will be. But um, so I gave myself a deadline. It was Christmas. And I said, by the end of February, my first episode will be out. And so I got all of the stuff to make videos. I watched a million videos on how to make videos and um, and then wrote a couple scripts and hammered them out and put my first episode out that last Tuesday in November 20 or uh, in February of 2020. That's quite a nerve wracking thing to do, isn't it? To put yourself out to the public. Um, it is. It really is. And, you know, it's it is hard because. People are, you know, you're you're so afraid of what people are going to say, and it's almost never, it, never as bad unless you're doing something like really controversial politics or something like that. But I don't, I don't really yeah. cover that kind of stuff. Um, so, but you build up, you build up the worst case scenario in your mind, yeah. and uh, you know, I I only told a few close friends and family that I was even making these videos. And, and I put them out and, you know, it was fine. The, the thing is, I had kind of hoped to have, you know, at, at least six months, maybe a year of making videos to get better and improve before people that I didn't really know started watching, you know? Yeah. Well, that didn't happen because of the pandemic. Everyone was at home watching YouTube. <laughs> and so you know, by the third and fourth video, I was getting thousands of views. And then in uh, June, only four months in, I was getting a million views on on the video about Garum. So it was, I didn't have a lot of time to refine. So I go back and watch those old videos. And I'm like, Oh, man, I wish I had <laughs> done that differently. I'm like, you know, often like, the lighting is terrible. The sounds not quite right. I'm yellow because I'm colorblind and I was doing all my color correcting. And so I was like, I look great. And uh, my, my husband was like, no, you look like you have jaundice. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, we did go back yesterday evening because I don't think I was initially aware of you when you first started. I saw come across later. So I did go back mm -hmm. to the beginning yesterday and watch the first couple of videos. Um, yeah, and they're still very good videos. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's all a process and it's always going to get better and stuff. There are a couple yeah. topics I'd actually like to revisit, like the history of the cheesecake. The second video I ever did was actually the first video too. I did cheese and then cheesecake, um, and I'd like to revisit those. Not necessarily the exact dishes that I made, but yeah. the history because my history was super short. You know, two and a half minutes of history mm. and now my history sections are usually like nine or ten minutes long it's more of a history show with a little food involved yeah, yeah i did um, notice the difference there yeah yeah, yeah. it's, it's um, um they were a lot shorter back then a lot shorter yeah. um yeah they've, they've definitely more direct i guess yeah 
Well, because I, when I started out, I was thinking, okay, I love teaching people about history, but I also often see people's eyes glaze, glaze over when I say, how about the history of dot, dot, dot. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to teach people about history, but I'm going to couch it in a cooking channel. And so that's kind of the hook. But but I don't want to give too much history because I don't I don't want to lose them. But yeah. then on YouTube, you can see exactly where people stop watching a video. And it turns out if people make it to the history section of the video, they stay the entire time. Almost nobody stops watching during the history section. And so the history section has just gotten longer and longer and longer and it <laughs> keeps people's attention. So I, you know, I'm I am shocked by it, but I'm pleasantly yeah. shocked. I love that people like learning the history of these things. So were you initially more interested in the history or the food? Like because oh, history all the way, all the way history. history. I've yeah. I've loved history since I was a little kid. Um, you know, I for a time, I thought that I would be a Civil War reenactor for my living, and it turns out that's not really a job. Um, but I, I love history. I love putting myself in the shoes of different characters in history. And my love of food has always been eating it, never making it, until, until I watched The Great British Bake Off. It was like 2015, maybe, when I fell in love with um with baking and and I hadn't really cooked before that so it was kind of all self-taught or rather by watching Mary Berry uh bake and so that came much later and I just found that a lot of people like eating baked goods so that was <laughs> that was my <laughs> my way into history it's a good way of hooking people it is yeah yeah as you know I mean I, I do the I do a bit of historical reenactment and I've got a YouTube channel um, mainly focused on Viking and Saxon stuff, but I often find right. at events when I'm displaying, that is the thing. Someone will come over and, oh, what kind of bread is that? Or what's this? Yep. Um, and yeah, it sometimes engages people that maybe wouldn't be so interested otherwise. Yeah, because it's an automatic way to, to relate to other people in history because I don't have a lot in common with a Saxon warrior. I've never gone into battle. I've never done I've never done any of the things that a Saxon warrior has done <laughs> except for sleep and uh, and eat. And so, you know, being able to actually experience a little bit of what somebody in history experienced, even though it's never exactly the way that it was, you can get close to it. You can you can at least put yourself sort of in their shoes for a minute. I find that both food and clothing are the two ways to do that really, really well. You know, if you ever mm. put on the clothes of historic clothing of, of any kind, it just automatically kind of literally puts you in the shoes of, of those people. And it, and it just transports you all of a sudden to, to a different place in a different time. Uh, and and so that and food, I find, do that really well. Mm, yeah, I think that the other thing about your channel that's good as well is that you're not using any equipment that your everyday person doesn't have. You're not using, you know, historical pots or anything. You're using things that everybody's got in the kitchen generally. Yeah, and that was I, I want to say that that was by design, um, but really it it wasn't because I, I mean. 
if I had had my way, I would have, you know, a historic kitchen where I would make all of this stuff in the, in the period manner of making things. But one, because I'm not covering a specific time period, it would make that very difficult. I would have to have mm. a Tudor style kitchen, a Regency style kitchen, a medieval kitchen. They would, they would all be so different that, you know, I mean, who has that kind of money? Um, but really what forced me to do it the way that it's done is I started this at the beginning of the pandemic. I couldn't, I, I had trouble getting ingredients like flour alone, you know, oh, yes. <laughs> interesting cooking tools and stuff. Um, and then when I saw that people were actually making the things that I was making at home, that was what made me think, okay, I actually, it wasn't by design, but I'm glad that I'm using only things that people have in their modern kitchen. Sometimes it's interesting ingredients or, or things like that, but nothing that you can't get. Um, because it, it allows people then to experience it at home. Um, and, and it's my, one of my favorite things about doing the channel is seeing people recreate these dishes, uh, in their own kitchens. Yeah. So when, when you start your research, do you pick a particular sort of food item? So I think you mentioned a Battenberg cake, for instance, earlier. So do you start with that and then look at the history of that and build around that? So that's how it started uh, in, in those first few episodes. That's definitely the way that it went. I think that when it took a turn was uh, with, I, I made a version of kind of an Anglo-Saxony, except not really, uh, oat cake. And then the story that I told was about King Alfred burning yeah. in the cakes and and really the history section of that video had nothing to do with food because the mention of the cakes is 30 seconds the mention of why he was there and the conflicts happening at the time in in Wessex and in England that was that was the story that that I told and so after that Sometimes, still today, it is, you know, it, it starts with a dish, but more often than not, it starts with a story that I want to tell, whether that's a history of food story or just kind of adjacent. Maybe it's the history of a person in his, a figure, you know, uh, Genghis Khan or, or Napoleon or somebody like that. And then I find a dish that will tie in and allow me to tell that story because the story is what keeps people interested usually more than the dish sometimes with a dish like pizza or macaroni and cheese or something that's really iconic that is what gets people interested but very often it's it's the story uh of, mm. of the history and so that's where i start and then i work backwards I wonder which way round people discover you, just like a random trailer thought there, was whether people are searching for the history or the food and where, where they sort of land when they find you. Be interesting it's to interesting know Because during the book tour, I would kind of ask people, because that was the first time I had ever met people who watched the show, uh, at yeah. least in a big group. And so I would, I would ask, like, what brought you to the channel? And, and it was divided. Some people, it was like, oh, it's the food. I just love, you know, all of the food 
stuff and 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 the cooking, the historic cooking, and whatnot. And then some people are like, I sit through the food part just because I am looking for the history. I love history and and that's why I'm there. And it's pretty divided evenly, which is interesting. Mm, yeah, it is. I mean, we've we've mentioned your book. I was going to bring it up a bit later, but um, I think that's probably a good segue, isn't it, to mention? Yeah, sure. To say I have I've only just picked up a copy. I've got one here. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah. Um. So I haven't actually baked anything from it yet. Uh, I was just flicking through it yesterday evening. Um. But um, where did where did the idea for the book come from? How did it go from a, a YouTube channel to a book? So pretty early on, uh, I think it was in maybe. September or October of that first year, a uh, an editor from Simon and Schuster reached out to me and said, "Hey, love your channel. What about doing uh, a cookbook?" And and I was like, "Oh, sure, why not?" Um, and then it it took forever because that person unfortunately was laid off, and all of her projects were scrapped except for one, which was mine. And it got pushed wow. over to a new editor um, who didn't really know the, the show or, or anything. And so it was just, you know, it was kind of interesting working with, with him. It was, it was just a different dynamic. But so it was kind of figuring that whole, that whole relationship out. And, uh, but that's where it came. I, it was not my idea. It was it was the the original editor from Simon and Schuster's idea, and uh, it was a big learning curve. Um, I I had no idea how long it would take and how much work it would have been, and I'm so glad I didn't because I wouldn't have done it. I would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so much work. It's such a long process. I mean, that was in the fall of 2020, and it came mm. out the the spring of 2023. So it's two and a half years uh, it takes. And, you know, I, the amount of time that I put into to working on it was a lot. And, and that's considering that many of the recipes in there, not all, but many of them mm. are from the show. So I had already done a lot of the research. So, you know, working on a second book, you know, if I, if I do a second book, I want it to all be new that's going to be even more work, which is probably why I haven't started a second book yet. <laughs> Have they approached you for a second one? Is that yeah. on the cards, you think? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So out of all the periods that you've done, because I'm sort of having a flip through now, and you've gone through, well, all over the globe, haven't you, um, and different periods of history, do you have a particular period that draws you in the most? I think when it comes to to food and everything, it's it's probably the medieval European uh, period, namely England. I'm a I'm a big Anglophile. Um, medieval England, you know, and my favorite period in history to to study, to talk about, to research, is from 1050 to about 1070 in northern France and and uh england yeah and unfortunately we don't have any recipes from from then and uh and very little about food from from then i mean archaeologically there there's some stuff but there's not a lot written 
uh, about food, the leech, leechdoms and, and whatnot have some stuff, but otherwise I think it would just be covering that period all the time. So maybe it's a good thing <laughs> that we don't have more history from the, or more, more food yeah. stuff from that. Um, but, you know, I would, I would eventually love to write an entire book just on that period because I find it to be one of the most fascinating periods of time, uh, the, the intrigue and just diabolical workings of the people uh, uh, who, who were kind of at the top of the heap at that time in, in England and in France and in Norway. And in Denmark, I mean, it's just it's it's just this huge like it's like where all of these different aspects of history come crashing together over a fifteen year period. I love it so so much, and I always want to talk about it, but there's nothing to talk about when it comes to food. Um, one of these days, I will. There's there you know in the Bayou Tapestry, which you can see behind me. I don't. Uh, yeah, it's my favorite piece of art, and there is the scene where William. Uh, Duke William has just gotten to England and he's having a meal with uh, with his people. And you see several dishes that are fairly clear what-ish they're eating. And so I want to kind of recreate some of those just as an excuse to talk about William and Harold. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good period to cover. And I think that's why I like doing it is because not... <laughs> So it, I suppose that almost sounds lazy, but the idea that you don't have anything to go on, it's almost like being a detective. So you're kind of pulling together all these little elements to try and make a recipe. Um, yeah. But I guess the later stuff, sort of the first cookbooks, you don't really have much more to go on, though, do you? It's still kind of very vague. It's, it's sparse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's I mean, that's really cooking for, gosh, until like the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's pretty sparse, though. It's interesting. In Europe, it's it's sparse. They they would name off the the ingredients sometimes. Once in a while, they would include some amounts, but not all of them. Uh, and then you know, vague instructions on how things are actually supposed to be cooked and put together. But I was just reading a 14th century recipe from Egypt, and the Arabic world at that time was so much better at writing down recipes. Um, it, it's really shocking. You look at a European recipe from that period and it'll be like a hundred words. And then you look at any of the Arabic cookbooks from that period and they're like 800 words long. It's a whole page or two and it's so specific, exact quantities. So you can really remake the dish. Um, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm just like, why, why didn't every culture <laughs> do this? Why did it take so long to catch up? Oh, well, yeah. I wonder whether the culture, because I often think like in, in the in prehistory and early history, the idea of a cookbook wouldn't make sense because you need certain ingredients to make a recipe and you don't have those. So you're going to go, well, I'm not making this recipe today. I'm going to just eat whatever's in the field or whatever you've right. been hunting. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to know. I've not really looked towards Egypt and stuff particularly and whether the availability of ingredients meant it was easier for them to to pull together a recipe i i think probably yes there were they had such a um a system of they were called souks uh, markets all the way from al-andalus in in southern spain and and morocco all the way over to you know past arabia and iraq 
that whole mm. area was they had wonderful trade it was it was more consistent than than in most most parts of Europe and this this system of souks they would have not only did every place have markets but they were really really well regulated uh Europe, Europe was well regulated as well but it was more fragmented uh whereas the 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 caliphates were much larger and so could kind of uh, standardize things over a larger uh, a larger area and so i'm guessing the the ingredients just were more standardly available um it, and i i also wonder if those cookbooks were being written for a different type of person because that's one of the things with a lot of medieval european cookbooks going all the way up through the the un, until the 17th century 18th century mm -hmm. even um the the books are being written for people who already know how to cook these dishes they are written by chefs for the cooks at big houses and and royal uh you know royal retreats and so it's more of a reminder i don't know if you've ever read any of escoffier uh auguste escoffier's recipes he was an amazing chef uh in the in the late 19th early 20th century he's the the, the chef behind like the savoy in london and the ritz uh, restaurants and everything. Mm. And he kind of codified fine dining as we know it today. Um, his recipes are next to useless, his early recipes, because they'll just say, make a blah, blah sauce, add, and then he'll name off 10 ingredients. No quantities, no instruction on that original yeah. sauce, which it turns out has 40 different ingredients and takes four days to make. There's nothing in that. And it's because he wasn't writing it for me at home cooking. He was writing yeah. it for the cooks in his restaurants who already knew all of this stuff. They had gone to school for it. They knew all of that. And so he didn't need to be specific. And that's the same thing, I think, with the medieval recipes. So maybe these medieval uh, Arabic texts were written for more of a wide audience. And so it really was recreate this exactly as I am in your own home. I'm guessing it would have you know, needed to have been a nice home, but it's not just for professional cooks. Mm. I don't know, though. I don't know no. that. We don't know a lot of these things, but it, it, it certainly makes sense. Yeah, well, the thing is, somebody probably yeah. does know. I, there's a woman named Noah, uh, sorry, uh, Nawal Nasrallah, who has translated so many of these texts and knows so much about Arabic cooking from the 10th to the 15th, 16th century. Mm. I bet she knows exactly who they were writing for. And if I read through all of her works, I would know, but I haven't gotten to that quite yet. <laughs> one day, yes. one day. There's never enough time, though, is there? It takes so long to research these things, and like, yeah, that's the thing. And you know, it that's that's part. Of, so every week, I'm I'm like, I've I've run out of stuff. I I don't have anything more to to share. And then yeah. all I have to do is is open a book. You know, I, I have tons of books behind me, some of which I've never opened, or opened and just looked at, and I was like, oh, I'm saving this for later. And <laughs> I can just open one of her books, for instance. She'll translate the entire cookbook, but the first 120 pages of the book 
is her interpretation and history and and all this other stuff. All I have to do is open it and read one page and I'm like, oh, I've got an episode idea. And it's the same with every single cookbook behind me. There are, I mean, there are cookbooks, but then there are just history of, of food books. And I just open it up and every single week I go through that same exact thing. I've run out of ideas. This is the end of tasting history. I open a book. <laughs> hey, here's an episode idea <laughs> every week. So are those all cookbooks I can say, or is that a mixture? So there are some historic cookbooks back there. The majority are probably, well, not majority. I'd say about half are just history of cooking, history of food mm. in a specific place or a specific time. And then so many of them are a little bit of both. You know, it's yeah. um, recipes that have been translated or whatever. And then there's a a large section of history. Very few historic cookbooks that have been translated or or published are just a list of recipes. It's you there's usually some context behind them. And it's that context that I actually find most interesting. Mm. Just check my notes a minute. Mm. I've lost my trade of thought. Where in England are you based? Um, I'm about 20 minutes from Stonehenge. Oh it's a lovely. small town called Devises. I have, I've never been, but I've heard of it. And I'm trying to think of why I've heard of it. There's a mention it in a video is why. And I, now I'm going to have to look oh, up interesting. which script that was. I'd like to know what that is. The only thing I can think of, I only came across recently was Devises Pie. Oh. Which is an interesting concoction. <laughs> <laughs> it's lots of offal, pickled tongues, pickled eggs. Um, I think there's some brains in there. Tripe is everything. Um, I've got ah. plans to try and recreate it if I can get the ingredients, but it's because um I mentioned it in the video on Simnel cake. Okay. Um, because I guess there is a specific type of Simnel cake that was developed in devises versus the Shrewsbury and the Bury varieties. So okay. I One reason I remember that is because I was having to look up how to pronounce devises because there are different spellings <laughs> throughout history. Yeah. <laughs> is it in Wiltshire? It is in Wiltshire, yeah. It's almost like you could almost drop a pin straight yeah. into the middle. So originally yeah. it was called the Wiltshire cake. I'll, I'll send this to you. Originally it was called the Wiltshire cake and then they changed it to Simnel. And uh, and they in, in 1810, they were spelling devises D-E-V-I-Z-E-S. Same as it is now. But I've also seen it in otherwise and other ones where it's an S-E-S -E -S instead of oh, right. Z-E-S. Yeah, devises. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And I've not come across that before. And I I mean, I, I've not lived here that long. I moved here just before the pandemic. Okay. Um, so there's loads of history, lots of Bronze Age burial mounds. And yeah, it's really cool. Nice. I've always, yeah. I've always wanted to go to Averbury. I've never been. Come over. We'll give you a talk. <laughs> I, I will. The next time yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm there, I want to do um, some stuff. I, I want to do that and the the midlands i've never really done the midlands of england at all uh so i want to we have really we tend to drive through it to other places 
it's just like not a great review <laughs> right right but there's some wonderful history and like um i guess it's not the the midlands but on the way up like go to hereford is hereford the midlands not really um but there there's some really great historical sites just kind of going up that way yeah uh, yeah there were a couple of other things because we we moved on to your book there was a couple of other things about your recreating recipes in general which ties in uh a little bit with the book i guess which is based on your youtube channel anyway was um like how many attempts does it take you to recreate a recipe is it that you just make the video in one and it either works or it doesn't or do you do 20 attempts and typically i'm i make it according to the recipe that from history as well as i can and it's yeah. one and done. Um, so sometimes, you know, if it's very vague, then obviously there's a lot of pre-work before I get into the kitchen sure. of looking at other recipes from whatever text I'm looking at or other period recipes that might offer clues of how much of something to use or how, what does this word actually refer to? And then sometimes I have to look at more modern versions to to get an idea of what they're maybe trying to describe in an old in an old text, um, sometimes they're just so vague. You you know you could literally end up with a soup or a sandwich from the same exact recipe because they are so <laughs> vague. So you have to you know I kind of have to look at different things to to piece together what yeah. I think that that is, and then I go into the kitchen and I try it. Uh, once in a while, it won't work to the degree that it's inedible, um, yeah. or I know that what I've just created is not what they're going for, but that's very few and far between. Maybe three or four times have I ever made a dish more than once. Um, I, I usually do it once. That's kind of the, that's why I, I don't call it a cooking show as much as a show where I'm cooking you know because it's uh it, it is yeah. they're not perfectly crafted recipes or anything it's more of like let's see if this works based on this old recipe now for the cookbook that's very different those were yeah. tested dozens if not actually hundreds of times because i have my uh i have a patreon and i offered many of those recipes to my patreon patrons to make at home and so they would make them give me feedback. I'd change things. They would make them again. And that was in, in an effort to one, make them taste, you know, good while still honoring the original recipe in most cases. Yeah. Um, and more so though, to make it standardized, to make it so even if the ingredient quantities and everything weren't changing, the wording was, you know, I, I would have people who had never cooked a thing in their life making the same exact recipe as someone who was a professional chef and finding and and the the feedback from those two people allowed me to craft the recipes to 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 make them more uniform so anyone can recreate them at home but even in in that case it's always with a mind of staying as true as possible to the original uh, recipe or what that person was was trying to to get across in their writings 
it's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't know when you say like one goes wrong and it's really bad. Are our tastes different to they were then? And is there an element of that's just what they intended? Right. And sometimes, you know, so it's it's rarely taste um, because I try not to judge too much historical taste <laughs> because like an ancient Roman's tastes were simply different. Uh, yeah. Same taste buds, but what they enjoyed was was different from from mine. Um, I mean, I, I put sugar on everything. That's what I like because I'm an American. Uh, so, you know, we all have different different likes and dislikes. Yeah. When I know that something has gone wrong is it's usually more on technique. And so it will be something like in the recipe, it's super vague, but then it says, you know, that I need to be able to spread what I've just made. Well, if what I've just made is not spreadable, if it's rock hard or a complete liquid, then I know, okay, something has gone wrong. Perhaps something yeah. was left out of the original text. Perhaps they just assumed that I knew to whip whatever I was making until it was, uh, you know, spreadable. And sometimes they assume that because people back then did know that they would have just known oh and then you do this that's you don't have to tell somebody to you know put the two pieces of bread together to make a sandwich that's that's obvious um so but maybe in 500 years that's no longer obvious and so we yeah. you know it's kind of hard to figure out what did they know what was what was common knowledge what wasn't um so that's what i mean when i when I say something has gone terribly wrong, it's rarely based on the flavor. It's usually based on this is simply not executable as, as it's written or as I've done it. And yeah, the funny thing is when you get to a lot of the, the manuals for household cooking, which started to pop up in the early 1600s in, in mass quantities. And by the 1700s, they're just everywhere. They're, you know, they are books of recipes meant for the home cook. So many of them had never been tested. They were written by men who had never been in the kitchen um, or they had, been, you know, they were compilations of other people's recipes from the local town and put together and they had never been tested. And you, you try them out and this is like that what you are actually putting on the page is completely impossible to, to recreate. You look at Isabella Beaton's first edition uh, from, from the 1860s, I believe. Um, a good third of those recipes are un, unmakeable because she didn't try them out. They, they simply do not work as, as recipes as written. And so you look to the second and third, and really there's the there's the revised edition, which I think was in the 1880s. And then you really start to get recipes that you can recreate at home, uh, because even though she was long since gone, long dead, uh, the people who had taken over her name uh, were, were tr trying out these recipes. And they actually would put in the book, they would like publicized that these are tested recipes because so many people who got that first edition were like, none of this stuff works. Um, and yet it was still such an important, an important book, but so yeah. many, so many of the recipes were complete trash.
The other thing I was just thinking as well was it, t- it ties into your original love of food coming from watching the Great British Bake Off. Um, and when they get the challenges where they just have that very vague make such and such a, and they don't yeah. tell them what to do, it feels very much yeah. like that's based in history itself, doesn't it? It's kind of... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, you know, and something I learned while I was doing the cookbook is recipe writing is an art. Uh, you know, just like the instruction manual for for an electronics something some are really well written and some are not and you can tell when they are not and so i wrote all of the recipes but then i handed them off to ann folkline who was my co-author who what she does is takes the recipes from cooks and formats them in a standardized way the uses the right wording the right descriptions to get people to recreate something just from reading it mm. and that's that's new that's a new art uh you know just in the last century or so and yeah. so a lot of the recipes throughout history didn't have that benefit and so you do get these recipes like on the great british bake off where it's just fragments um, because the person writing it knows how to make it. And so they mm. just assume, well, you know what a buttercream is. Everybody knows what a buttercream is. I'm not even going to mention how to make that. Just spread it on the spread it on the cake. Uh, yeah. So we should probably move into the, the last sort of questions that I ask every guest. Let's do it. There's one quick thing I want to mention, and I might edit this out because my daughter told me not to tell you, but I thought it was really sweet. So my daughter's six, and I had the book in my hand yesterday, and she saw your picture on the back of the book. And she went, oh, he's handsome. He looks like a prince. Oh, I love her. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really sweet. I thought, and she was going, don't tell him I said that. So I'll have to check with her. It might get cut, but... um, yeah, well, I always worth passing that. <laughs> it makes it makes my day all all the better. So I like that she said that. It ties into your love of history. You can be a prince. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So this probably ties into something you alluded to earlier. Is if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? Um, I think that I would love to have a full on Tudor style kitchen and recreate one of the feasts that Henry VIII ate, because we have a few uh, feasts where essentially we have a full menu of what they ate, and they're just fantastic. And I would love to see, you know, huge haunches of meat being put over an open fire with the the poor boy who sat there all day (laughs) turning (laughs) it, you know, that's what I would love to do. Unlimited budget. There we go. All right. So next question is, do you think you could survive on a Viking age diet? Yes, happily, probably not. But yes, I I absolutely could. I I mean, if I if all I was drinking was was water and mead, I'd be I'd be good to go there. And, uh, you know, I really like fish. So so I'm I'm good there. I wouldn't be eating probably much of the dried like stock fish and whatnot, <laughs> they, they so often. So Viking age, yes, perhaps as yeah. a Viking, someone who is actually spending a lot of time on a boat, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> All right. So the other one that's tied into that is: is there any food you'd miss if you were on a Viking age diet? 
chocolate. Yeah, that, I mean, it, I can't imagine my life without chocolate. I can hardly go one day without chocolate. <laughs> so that would be rough. All right. There's, so yeah, so we're going to jump straight into the three. So for anyone that's listening that hasn't listened before or watched before, these three are normally kept aside for Patreon only. Um, so next question is, what's the worst thing you've ever eaten? The worst thing I've ever eaten? Oh, boy. You know, one of them is actually probably on my show. It was an an ancient Roman patina, which is kind of like a kind of like a frittata or an omelet, but it had uh, jellyfish in it. And it turns out I do not like jellyfish. First of all, I don't really like eggs and I'm slightly allergic uh, to them. Oh. So on top of that, <laughs> my throat swelled up and I had to eat jellyfish and I'm, I'm it's the texture thing. I, I don't like it. It was, it was, not yeah, good. I'm not into jelly textures. I think I'd be with nope. you on that one. <laughs> uh, what's the most memorable meal you've ever had most memorable meal i ever had actually i think it was um prom night uh my my junior or senior prom perhaps we went to a place called tea cooks which is a really fancy restaurant in in arizona where i'm from and it was the first time that i ever had roasted duck with like a sweet I, I can't remember if it was a cherry sauce or something like that and it just blew my mind and and now whenever duck is on the menu I get duck uh that that whole and you know part of it is that the event of going to prom and everything but it was it was also the food it was a very <laughs> memorable evening all right. So the very last question is you've died and your family and friends are preparing your grave goods. What food and drink are you taking to feast in Valhalla? Ah, there will be many sleeves of Oreo cookies uh, <laughs> surrounding my body. I can tell you that. Um, yeah. And, uh, and pizza. And I know I'm going to get hate here but it's going to be Hawaiian pizza. I love, oh. I'm a pineapple on pizza <laughs> kind of guy. I love, I love sweet and, sweet and salty combinations. So pizza, Oreos, and um, yeah, pretty, pretty simple there. <laughs> Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Because <laughs> those are all foods that I can eat over and over and over again. That and hummus. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if there's like a side of hummus bring it bring it all <laughs> i think that's the second time that someone's taken hawaiian pizza to valhalla really it's delicious yeah. people who you know i think it's such a a polarizing thing whether you put pineapple on pizza or not and i just love it not too much you know just three or four pieces a slice adds that little sweetness to the to the very saltiness though usually yeah. instead of canadian bacon i actually like uh pepperoni and and pineapple on mine <clears throat> What are you washing it down with? I don't think you said a drink. Oh, or did I miss that? Gosh, um, probably, probably Coke, probably Coke, especially with pizza. But yeah. um, I thought you might have gone for a cocktail. I, so if I'm if I'm bringing a cocktail, then it's just <laughs> going to be it's it's going to be simple gin and tonic. It's going to just be a gin and tonic. Gin and tonic, nice. All right. So where can people find you? Social media and all that. 
So everything is up on YouTube, Tasting History with Max Miller. Uh, and then I'm Tasting History with Max Miller on Instagram as well, where I post more my personal life, kind of, you know, what I'm doing here and there. Uh, those, are, those are the two places I'm most active. Um, and I guess people can get your book. I got mine off of Amazon. Is, is there a preferred yep. place? No, where, wherever fine books are sold, it's at a lot of bookstores, um, you know, always support your local bookstore. Uh, but if they don't have it, then um, one, tell them to order it. And two, then you can go online and get it at Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or, or anything like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to, to be able to, to meet up. And next time I come to, to England, we'll have to get together. I want to yeah, I want to wear one of those helmets yeah. behind you. <laughs> yes, come over. We can do some reenactment. I'll get I you on the battlefield. <laughs> love it. Awesome. Uh, thanks everyone for watching, and I will see you next time. Goodbye. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening.